This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Loopcast. I'm Chelsea Damon, and today we have another great show for you. We're going to talk about understanding information and psychological operations. Today we have a new guest on the Loopcast named Jonathan Nichols. So thank you for coming on the Loopcast, Jonathan. Thank you for having me. For our listeners, Jonathan is an independent security consultant, and he was a psychological operations soldier from 2006 to 2015 and has deployed as a defense contractor working in information operations. He's also worked as part of a tactical psychological operations team before becoming the lead counter-propaganda analyst for the United States Air Force Base, Iraq. He's developed intelligence products which measure and predict sentiment across battle spaces and has worked on multiple issues in cyberspace, including analyzing Russian propaganda targeting the U.S., Um, citizens of 2016 and our presidential elections here in the States. So Jonathan has a lot of published work as well and has been featured in the media. So he's really great for this topic, and I'm very excited to have you on the show, Jonathan. Thanks for having me. So why don't we start out talking about a description of your overall experience with psychological and information operations? Sure. So uh, I guess we should start by defining our terms, right? Psychological operations is uh, the method of persuading, changing, and influencing the hearts and minds of foreign nationals to meet U.S. objectives. Um, And information operations is the catch-all term for, it's the coordinating element of the five branches of information operations. That's psychological operations, military deception, operational security, electronic warfare, and uh, CNA computer network stuff. Um, so my, with that out of the way, I've been in PSYOP and I.O. for 12 years now, uh, working in both the government space and the private sector, as you said. I joined PSYOP in 2006. Um, I was deployed to Iraq in 08 as a tactical PSYOP soldier in both Baghdad and central Iraq. Um, there we did a whole bunch of counter-Iranian influence, counter-terrorism stuff. We did some terrain denial, some deception operations. Uh, yeah, those types of things, pro-Iraqi government type work. Um, I deployed to Iraq again in 2010, where I was the chief counter-propaganda analyst for United States Forces Iraq. Um, There, I was largely focused on identifying the flow of propaganda uh, from, like, al-Qaeda headquarters uh, or the al-Qaeda leadership maybe over in Yemen or wherever they were, or Abbottabad, for example, um, and how that propaganda process flow was disseminated from the those leadership elements down to the people on the ground typically through the event uh, at that point they were using largely the forums online to disseminate their information and get to the uh, battlefield commanders who would then you know post notes on mosques etc um I deployed to Afghan. I deployed to Afghanistan in 2011 um, and 2012. First, I was the atmospherics manager for the city of Kandahar. Um, the objective there was to identify and understand the sentiments of the local people living in that area. In 2012, I was uh, "quote unquote" promoted to the flagpole, and I got to uh, Kabul, 
where we were uh, taking that atmospherics product and consolidating it and finding ways to optimize the way that information was shared with the pub or shared with uh, higher leadership and how decision makers used that data in an appropriate way. Um, that was working with the Combined Forces Special Operations Command, CIVSOC, and Combined Joint Psychological Operations Task Force, CJPODIF. Uh, those products ultimately made it into the presidential daily brief, um, which is really cool for me. Um, and since then, I've focused largely on um, cybersecurity events, uh, both in information operations and your traditional cybersecurity threat intelligence type space. Well, you've had a very interesting background, and I love all the acronyms you've been rattling off, which DC and, and the government in general, we love the acronyms around here, so it's always fun to hear new ones. Uh, mm-hmm. And also make, make a disclaimer, I did say this before we started recording, for some reason there's a lot of helicopter activity in the area that I am in the city today, so if you hear any background noise, I apologize, nothing I can do about it. <laughs> So why don't you tell us how you would frame psychological and information operations? So what are the nitty-gritties of it for our listeners that might have no clue what it entails and what it means? Well, SIAP is a branch of information operations. IO is, like I said, the coordinating element for those five U.S. messaging efforts. SIAP, MILDEC, OPSEC, EW, and CNA. Uh, Psychological operations, military deception, operational security, electronic warfare, and computer network attack, computer network analysis, I forget exactly. Um, Each of these elements has sort of their own part to play. So a commander will usually at the joint level develop some sort of mission plan. The IO planners will take, information operations planners will take that mission, break it down into the constituent parts for each of the five branches of IO. Um, And they coordinate with those lower elements. PSYOP's job specifically is to uh, play with the cognition of the uh, of the target audience um, and sometimes the target audience could be the adversary themselves um, this might include helicopter deception operations um, where you pretend to be a helicopter to make bad guys stop shooting at you um, all the way down to leaflet drops or uh, key leader engagements in order to influence you know the local population to say support the Iraqi government um, yeah so IO will largely coordinate those elements um, so say you need support uh, in the information space that involves identifying communications that bad guys are doing. That would be an electronic warfare mission. If we then wanted to inject messaging over those radios that the bad guys were using, um, that would that messaging would come from the psychological operations people. Um, and these, that's sort of, uh, yeah, basically how the IO and PSYOP people interact with each other. Would you say that in this in these categories, there's one that dominates the field more than the other that is used more or needed more? Um, I would say, I mean, it really depends on the mission, right? And when you're on the ground in Baghdad, it's the, it's the PSYOP guys with loudspeakers that you'll see every day uh, walking around with the infantry guys. You know, electronic, but then when you look at maybe cyberspace, you'll find that you know, the cyber command has, a, and the CNA people have a much larger role to play there. Uh, and PSYOP, I'm sure we'll get into this later, PSYOP, uh, there's been institutional issues about PSYOP playing in the cyberspace. Um, and operational security, of course, is you know, a regular daily job that hopefully everybody in the Department of Defense is doing on a daily basis. So it's it really just depends on from which frame of reference you're looking, whether you're a soldier sitting on the base in Baghdad or whether you're uh, an operator sitting in Fort Meade playing in cyberspace. Those are, those are different missions and they have uh, different roles to play. 
So considering technology and psychological and information operations, how central is technology in the roles that it plays? Well, so PSYOP and IO are all about affecting information wherever it resides. Um, in information security, you typically hear that information is either to be set in transit or at rest. Um, you know, as we said before, the roles of electronic warfare uh, is to deal with the elect- electromagnetic spectrum and disrupt and degrade the adversary's data sent over those airwaves. Computer network will focus on data for computer systems. Um, PSYOP will work to target the cognition of the target population. Uh, this, uh, let me see here. Um, so as social media and online communications increasingly affect the lives of the populations that we target, it's um, necessary for PSYOP soldiers and civilians to develop those tactics that are needed to influence the populations, whether it be Al-Qaeda guys sitting on Telegram or uh, Russian bots sitting on um, Twitter or whatever it is. Uh, there's a significant institutional pushback against PSYOP using cyberspace and social media. Um, since PSYOP has kind of been institution, uh, since PSYOP has been around, uh, we've sort of been precluded from conducting campaigns which can be construed to influence our allies or our own populations. Uh, Radio Free America, for example, doesn't broadcast in the U.S. It broadcasts overseas, uh, you know, in the Soviet bloc countries or wherever else. Uh, I, I personally experienced fierce debates, particularly when I was in uh, Baghdad monitoring online Al Qaeda activity. Uh, where PSYOP teams wanted to counter-message adversaries, be it the Taliban or ISIS or Al-Qaeda online. Um, but the uh, the issue was always that there was a potential that the U.S. population might see that. Um, I think as we move forward, there's going to have to be some sort of way for us to rectify whether we want PSYOP to play online and and have these discussions uh or have these have, have the ability to influence these target populations. Um, the issue there is sort of the ethics around it, right? If we start messaging, if we start doing counter propaganda online, and say we're targeting, we're, one who would do it? Would we have some sort of ministry of information that dictates which propag what what counts as propaganda and what doesn't? What messaging can we? can we decide that we want to stop the U.S. population from seeing, for example, or do we want to send our own counter-messaging after? Um, it's fine and good when we're thinking about Russian propaganda, that maybe we want to do something at a government level to stop that. Um, but this really becomes a slippery slope. Are we going to start countering messaging that we see from maybe our own far-right or far-left groups, be it in the U.S. or anywhere in an allied country. Um, and if we do that, who gets to draw that line? Um, not to be political, but I'm sure that the pro-Trump people wouldn't like it if Obama had control of a ministry of information. And vice versa, I'm sure the uh, pro-Obama people would have hated or would hate it if Trump gets his own ministry of information and gets to decide what counts as fake news and what the U.S. population can and can't see and what messaging uh, a PSYOP team would send online that the U.S. population would then be exposed to. So as there's been a bit of a push and pull, and right now, at least within the government, my sense is that the powers that be are much more comfortable using um, the cyber capabilities of just knocking down uh, bad guy stuff, whether it be a, taking a website offline or whatever it is, as opposed to doing direct counter messaging, because that can be construed as you know the U.S. government influencing its own population, and it's just there's something about that that seems antithetical to the First Amendment and 
to general Western values. And also countering messaging is a very tricky slope, especially since the messenger and the credibility of the messenger is very important. So I would assume that if there was going to be some sort of interaction on this level, it would have to be uh, covert since you really are not wanting to counter message a terrorist group by being a branch of the U.S. government. They're not going to take you seriously. We saw that with the Think Again, Turn Away campaign on Twitter years ago. Oh, jeez, yeah. That's... Yep, the State Department really pulled a great one there, didn't they? Um, yes. So it really – I've had success in face-to-face engagements with foreign populations, getting them to understand that you know, the U.S. is not here to, uh, to keep Iraq or to keep Afghanistan. Our job is to, is to set the country up and then get out. We don't care about taking over your country. Um, there's a way to do messaging, at least in those situations, that are that are reasonable for the target population to understand and sort of get where the U.S. is coming from. Um, in PSYOP, we have we have white PSYOP, gray PSYOP, and black PSYOP. Uh, white, white. Uh, so it refers to uh, who the messenger is. So white PSYOP would be if you see you know me in uniform walking up to you and handing you a leaflet. Right, that would be. It's very clear where the messaging is coming from. Gray PSYOP would be maybe a billboard where you don't know exactly who posted that. Was it the U.S. government? Was it the Iraqi government? You know, was it some local shopkeeper or some, some local whatever? Uh, and then black PSYOP is the type of thing you're talking about where it's a bit more covert and falls somewhere in the line of military deception where uh, you're intentionally trying to make the messenger look like they're someone other than they are. You see that a lot in divide-and-conquer tactics, um, which uh, the Russians are pretty good at doing to us right now, where um, you appear to be, <clears throat> you maybe appear to be from the opposing side of a, of a topic, whatever it is, um, and then try to get the, uh, the target population to split themselves. So... Uh, I've done this with the uh, Islamic Army of Iraq versus uh, the uh, Al-Qaeda in Iraq. Get those two to fight each other. That's more beans and bullets they're spending on themselves and not on us. Uh, and you see it. You see the Russians doing it. Well, they will <clears throat> pretend to be you know, some crazy person on the Internet. And then I think they, a, a good example was when they intentionally put the uh, – what was it? They went online and intentionally put – a local uh, Islamic group in the same location as a pro-gun rally. Um, and that was an example of black PSYOP deception, where they tried to get both parties to to start a fight with each other on the same location. I think it was somewhere in Texas um, during the 2016 years. I think it was Texas. Yeah, I, I vaguely remember that. Mm-hmm. How should we conceptualize and frame success and failures within psychological and information operation campaigns? So you've highlighted all the different ways someone can go about doing so, but what would we consider a success and also what would be a complete failure? Well, measuring the success or failure of any messaging campaign, whether it's PSYOP or how good McDonald's is doing has been something that we are totally capable of doing and have been for some time. Uh, Marketers will tell you that they do it with a variety of tools, whether it's poll data or click rates on Twitter or positive engagements with brands and brand recognition. Um, In SIAT, the doctrinal term for this, if you were to open the field manual, is called measures of effect. 
Uh, and these need to be tailored to the types of mission and the terrain in which the messaging is being delivered. Um, it's hard enough, it's pretty hard to get people to answer surveys over the phone. So you can kind of imagine how difficult it is to get a truthful survey answer from a Pashtun tribal guy when the person asking the question is dressed in the uniform of an invading RV and carrying an assault rifle, saying, how do you feel about the about your local Afghan government when I'm the invading army with a gun? You're going to tell me you love it, even if you don't. Um, so in social media campaigning, in social media campaigns such as what we've observed the Russians doing, but also like the Iranians during Occupy Wall Street, uh, I like to use the, the models we developed in the Atmospherics program where we can identify key influencers and the people they influence. And this is pretty easy to do on Twitter. You can see what, who key influencers are you know, largely by the number of followers and engagements they have. Uh, and track messaging as it's being delivered through a network diagram. Um, so as people engage, they are nodes, uh, and as they, sorry, people are nodes or accounts are nodes and the engagements they have with each other are the edges or the lines between the nodes, nodes just being dots on a map. Um, and then as, as positive or negative messaging or any messaging really gets pushed through the space, you can track the, you can track the engagement of that messaging, um, across a, a sample of, uh, a sample of an audience, be it, you know, everybody on Twitter or, 18 to 25 year old males in Texas, for example. Um, so the this is one way of doing it. There, um, other ways of measuring effect in Afghanistan were sort of the same things: measuring the uh, the way that people spoke about a subject, whether it was people saying positive or negative things about the Taliban, um, or whether they were saying positive negative things about the U.S. or the economy, for example. Um, yeah, these are all different ways of measuring effect and. and as marketers will tell you, we've been doing it forever. When you're looking at constructing a campaign for a target audience, let's use let's use Russia, for example. How would you pick out the key elements that you'd need to use in a psychological and information operations campaign? So the this is called the target audience analysis process. Um, so the way the PSYOP process works, is a seven-step PSYOP process. I think if you Google that, um, the first image that comes up will be what I'm referring to. The, what you're going to, which, you know, the key objectives that the commanders want the, the population to believe um, will already be broken out for you, kind of. The IO planners will have figured that out. Um, there can be some some chatter between the people on the ground and the IO planners that we need to add or subtract from that. But largely, those campaign goals will have been set for you. The be it. I'm sorry. What was the so? For example, for Russia, um, we would look at we would look at you do are people getting influenced by the uh, by the I guess that's counter messaging. Uh, we would look at which audiences we see that the Russians are talking to. And then we would do a target audience analysis on those individuals. So I'm going to use Ukraine, for example, because I don't want to do a target audience analysis on Americans. Um, the, the people in Donetsk, for example, might be the kind of people, or might be relatively conservative in their beliefs. Um, they might be largely an, old, an older population, um, et cetera, et cetera. We would take these individual characteristics, uh, break them down into uh, target audience groups, 
So one group might be the 18 to 25-year-old males. Another might be uh, the elderly key leaders in the Donetsk region, whatever it is. And then we would um, identify the conditions and vulnerabilities for each target audience group. So what do the 18 to 25-year-old males like to do with their free time? And how is that different from what the other target audiences like to do with their free time? Um, and these things, as we, as we, you know, what's, what colors do they, what, green means something different to the Iranians than it does to Americans, uh, than it does to the Japanese, for example. So all these things would be identified in what's called the target audience analysis worksheet. Then as we develop our, uh, our PSYOP campaigns to influence these people to, to hold whatever beliefs that we're trying to get them to hold or not hold the beliefs that the Taliban say are pushing or the Russians are pushing, um, we would take all of these conditions and vulnerabilities of the target audience, apply a, uh, some sort of logical argument to, you know, here's the line of persuasion that we're going to use. You should believe in the Iraqi government because they also like the color green, whatever it is. Um, and then we would, uh, and that would, so that's essentially how we break out the messaging. For a campaign, I'm sure it really depends on the issue but is there a general timeline that you would give yourselves to spread this message and see its results? Yes, um, that's, that's, that's what the target audience analysis sell at the Combined Joint Psychological Operations Task Force does. Um, that's literally their mission. Um, the, there is a timeline. It usually uh, will extend two years out or so. Um, <clears throat> and in there, you will have uh, decision points where you decide, uh, where you, you stop and measure what you can from the target audience, be it you know through polls or through atmospherics or other ways of collecting what the target audience is thinking about a given subject. Um, you say for it, if it's counter IEDs, you can pretty easily count how many people have called a tip sign and say that, hey, we found IEDs in this area, uh, when we know that there's IEDs in the area. Um, we can then, so we measure the, so we make decision points, so counteracting D is probably a good one. We'll, we'll run the campaign to see how it's going, and we'll stop at a predetermined moment in time, collect our, uh, collect our atmospherics, or hopefully we're collecting atmospherics continually, identify if the campaign is working. If so, maybe we should keep going. What is working? What isn't working? Um, adjust the campaign as needed. Maybe, you know, it turns out that we've been using the wrong color, or we accidentally said something that was offensive and we didn't know it and so we'll need so we'll make those adjustments uh there at the decision point or if it's egregious we'll make it on the fly but uh, typically yeah there's a whole set there's there's actually is a chart that we use to identify when a, when a campaign's going to go out um what campaigns are going out how they uh how they present a unified message and yeah so that's sort of how it works and it's not too much different than what you would expect from McDonald's messaging. I'm sure that they have four or five different uh, advertising campaigns going at any given time. And I'm sure that they stop and collect poll data or whatever it is to identify what messaging works and what doesn't. And in that way, again, it's not at all different from what marketers would do. Have you ever come across an instance where you've got this campaign, you've tried it out, it's a complete failure, and instead of readjusting it, you just give up. I mean, has there ever been a situation where it's just not worth continuing on or there's been such a 
disastrous campaign that some of the messaging you used was too offensive or um, really didn't resonate with the audience, that it's just better to pack up and go versus trying to salvage it. Well, I once accidentally was handing out exploding tips line lighters, so I stopped that one right away. <laughs> as soon as I, <laughs> I think that's probably the clearest example. Um, yeah, we found that the lighters were uh, defective um, in the oh. Iraqi heat. They would explode. Um, okay. But we didn't realize this until we kept hearing a lot of large explosions or little explosions from inside the container where we kept them all. And we came in, we found boxes and boxes of lighters had exploded in the heat. Um, yep, so we stopped handing those out real quick. <laughs> that, that's a good idea. It's a, a very explosive messaging campaign. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so... Thinking about information and psychological operations, I think a lot of people would bring up Russia, of course, with the interference we've seen in our elections, the 2016 elections. And when we have the case of Russia, it's a state against another state. But then you've also talked about countering messages and psychological operations of non-state actors. So we have this you know, big state versus non-state, so higher level versus lower level, how do you tackle the two? And um, would one require more high-tech versus low-tech initiatives to attack the issue? Um, I'm sorry, there's some background stuff going on here. One second. Sorry about that. My phone started playing last week tonight in the background somehow. Um, <laughs> no worries. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so the way the the way that it's it's again a little bit more about how how the adversary is messaging um, than it is state versus non-state. So if the messaging is being done um, online, uh, as as I think this, whether it's ISIS and whether it's ISIS on Telegram um, or whether it's Russia on, on social media stuff, um, the preferred methodology seems to be to knock down those things and keep PSYOP out of it for fear that we would see the U.S. Uh, the US population observing um, propaganda or counter-propaganda from us. The, uh, when we're talking about on-the-ground stuff, the Taliban tend to like to conduct their activity with key influencers in the village. So we'll see them try to target the government officials, the military officials, or the religious officials in a given village or region or whatever it is. Um, and so if that's the way that they're controlling their messaging, then it's a good idea for us to also engage those key nodes and key influencers in the village. Um, and you know, as they're trying to instill fear in the general population to follow the messaging of those key leaders, we will go out of our – we will – do several things to try to make sure that the local population maybe doesn't feel or doesn't have to feel afraid of the Taliban and they can go ahead and think their own thoughts. Um, the Russian interference seems much more grassroots. Uh, they seem to be interested in dividing groups into in-group versus out-group type messaging. So you can think of trying to get two, two audiences to, uh, to never even be aware of the basic news that the other audience is consuming. You can think of what MSNBC is playing versus what Fox News is playing. Um, and so as their messaging is tailored to, uh, to get these two target populations to not speak to each other, um, I would suggest, I would, I 
I'm not running a PSYOP campaign against Americans here, but I would suggest that it might be a good idea that the uh, U.S. population unify around what we have in common and not fall for the in-group, out-group methodologies that we're seeing the uh, Russian propaganda thrive in currently. When you talk about, for instance, the Taliban and maybe that being much more on the grassroots, on the ground level, I would assume that just by principle, boots on the ground trying to influence or change a narrative that is being discussed within the community, by default will put you at an inherent, uh, uh, what's the word, inherent um, risk and also drawback because you aren't from the community, you're an outsider. So how do you deal with things like that when you're on the ground in a situation like that where it's a completely different community and you are that outsider influence, so therefore you're at a disadvantage? Well, again, it kind of depends on the message, right? If I'm trying to get the population to believe that the U.S. is... the U.S. is only in Afghanistan because of 9/11, and as soon as we, as soon as we, you know, get the guys that got or that once once we stop the Taliban from being in power because of 9/11, um, we'll be out of there, and we could, you know, we want you guys to govern yourselves, and we're only here because someone in your tribe came over here and knocked down buildings in our tribe. It's the only reason we're here. That is a good message for a soldier to deliver. Um, other messaging where I'm trying to understand what the, or I'm trying to get the local population to believe um, that the Taliban are bad guys. Uh, that might be better done if I can get a notable person in their community to deliver that message as opposed to me. So a prominent business leader, a prominent doctor, for instance, would be a great person to try to deliver that message. Uh, sometimes through op-eds, if the if the population is literate, like say uh, in Baghdad, I believe that the newspaper that we had in Baghdad was called Baghdad Now, and some of that work was done. Um, or you know, in non-literate populations, it might be done over the radio, or it might just be having the uh, the local sheikh deliver messages that are that are in line with what we're trying to get the population to believe. So it's it's helpful to have those key influencers on your side. Could we say that our end of the psychological and information operations is another form of propaganda? So we're creating our own propaganda to counter a different propaganda. I'm doctrinally supposed to tell you no, but I'll also tell you <laughs> that I'll also tell you that the minute they bring it up in the schoolhouse, everybody laughs. So yeah. Okay, we'll move on to another question <laughs> from your really varied experience in this field, what would you say, in your personal opinion, was your greatest success and greatest campaign that you can actually talk about? Um, Yeah, what stands out from your point of view? Oh, boy. Um, I haven't told this story in a while. (laughs) No shit, there I was, 2008. Uh, What had happened was my... um, because a a large number, because for whatever reason, a, a detachment of PSYOP had to go back to, or actually a whole company, had to go somewhere else in the world 
Um, so the team in the, the Sayab company that I was a part of in Baghdad had to fall in and take over central Iraq. That's where uh, the ancient city of Babylon is. That's where it's the Hillel province is what it's called. Um, and I had identified, and because of this you know, quick shuffle, something happened that was never supposed to happen. And I ended up running a PSYOP team by myself for about a month while my two other team members were gone. Um, and my goal was to identify, I was just going to do a counter IED campaign. Um, and the reason for that was simply because the we had we had uh, information that IEDs coming from Iran were going through this area and then being pushed up to Baghdad. And I felt, I guess it's called survivor's guilt because I was had just been in Baghdad and I was the person catching those IEDs. Um, and now I was down here and the reason why the area was completely quiet and no one was trying to kill Americans down in central Iraq was because they wanted to keep those supply lines completely open. Um, so I developed this campaign and old school with the map, put pins in and t- t- tracked every historic uh, IED location, IED cache location where they bury these things for future use. Um, tracked all this and then tracked the where all the the known key leader or uh, high value targets, what we call them, the the bad guys, or we knew that they uh, that they tended to bed down. Um, and I did like a three kilometer by three kilometer grid square. And I was, this is the area that I'm going to focus heavily on. And we did, we did a, a loudspeaker mission, the whole area, leaflet shops. I went door to door. I'm pretty sure every Iraqi there, uh, saw my face and saw the message you know, at least three times. That was the objective. Everybody sees it at least three times. Um, and the, the local checkpoints that were set up by the, by the Afghan security force or the Iraqi security forces in the area, um, were given leaflets to hand out to anybody who came in or out of the area. Um, and so <clears throat> I spent like two weeks out there doing that. I got back to base um, and like the first day back to base, back to like a high, like a nice comfy, the big bases where you can take the body armor off and, and get nice warm food. Uh, I was on, I was grabbing breakfast in the morning and someone said, uh, Hey, did you hear about the large IED cache that uh, they found over there? And we had heard a huge explosion that morning, so it was uh, so, it, and it's somewhere off base. I guess that was um, the explosive ordnance guys detonating this gigantic cache of IEDs. Um, and it turned out that the the trucker who had trucked these huge IEDs in from Iran came to the American base with one of my leaflets and drew a map on the back of exactly where the where they had buried all of them. It was the third largest cache of IEDs in the history of the war in Iraq. Um, and there were not many EFPs in 2009. I'd like to think a lot of that was because we got all of them in 2008. Well, that is a great story. I'm, I'm glad I asked you that question, and <laughs> congratulations on that. Thank you. i was uh, been trying to live up to that one forever. I don't know if I ever will. <laughs> Maybe the thing is you don't need to at this point. You've done your good deed, and you can live happily ever after. <laughs> <laughs> Too young for that yet. <laughs> What would you say is the future of psychological and information operations? Is this the way forward? Are we always going to see this? Or do you think there's something in the future that will become even more prominent? Well, I think it's, you know, it's we're definitely moving online. And we need to really decide, not just America, but all the democratic societies need to decide how we're going to handle that. Are we going to allow counter-messaging? 
And who's going to be allowed to do that counter-messaging? Who's going to be allowed to knock down propaganda? Who's going to be allowed to identify what counts as propaganda? Um, is it going to be Trump and his team, or is it going to be whoever the Democrats decide that they want to put up? Um, do we really want that Ministry of Information, or is it you know a NATO ally? Do it's uh, propaganda like in the UK? You're not allowed to even have. Uh, adversary propaganda. If you have a copy of, it's criminal in, um, it's criminal to hold, uh, say, uh, the Al Qaeda magazine, the Inspire magazine in in London. Um, I, whereas in America, it's totally fine to have it. Um, I have several copies, and I'm not a terrorist, right? Yes, I found um, that out the bad way last time I was in the UK, so I completely yeah. understand. So do we want do we want to apply that standard, or do we want to you know let Germany do it? In which case, no one's ever allowed to to look at a you know, they can't have the History Channel because they're not allowed to see the swastika. I don't know how exactly true that is, but I know that my uh, my history YouTubers don't do the swastika because they'll get uh, demonetized in in Germany just by having it, uh, just for showing history of uh, World War II. Um, so do we really? Uh, how are we going to apply? How are we going to identify how we're going to counter propaganda? Um, who's going to be the arbitrator of what counts as propaganda? Um, is it the UK? Is it Donald Trump? Is it Germany? Who's going to do it? Who gets to be the Ministry of Information? Who gets to decide when we've crossed the line from free speech into propaganda, um, particularly when we don't know who the we, we don't necessarily know when we're just seeing messaging, whether it's a, an American civilian saying it, in which case it probably counts under the First Amendment, um, or whether it's somebody in Russia typing it, in which case it's probably fair game to, to counter. Um, and then, like I said, who gets to do that countering and with what? Uh, do we do we get to limit the American people's or the you know, the UK's people ability to even observe adversary propaganda? Um, or do we get to have a ministry of information to counter that propaganda? And that's a scary world. Do we I think I saw that in V for Vendetta? Do we want a government ministry of information to tell us what to think? Um, I don't know the answer to it, but it's something that the uh, democratic peoples of the world really need to sit down and have a soul-searching discussion about. Because uh, this stuff's not going away. That's really important to think about because it really does become this idea of, especially here in the States, the notion of free speech and being able to read and and view whatever we choose or privacy issues and security issues. And I know we've seen tech companies come under a lot of fire, especially overseas in the UK, so so to speak, um, because of some of these issues and, and who holds the responsibility for the contents on their platforms, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I would, uh, I would add that of the, of all the Western peoples that have been dealing with this propaganda for, for some time, um, far and away, the best example I've observed has been the Estonians. They, they'll come to, to, uh, think tanks here in DC and regularly just yell at Americans, yell at us. <laughs> How come you guys aren't training your people to understand and identify propaganda? Um, they, they like to say that they've done that and their population is in some senses inoculated against uh, Russian propaganda. 
simply because they've been trained since they were kids to identify what is propaganda and what isn't. Um, and they tell us that we need to get media literacy into schools. And of course, we shoot back to them. That's easy when you're a small state. When you, the way that we do our education system, the people in Virginia and people in Washington State and people in Texas, those states get to identify what they're going to teach and what they aren't going to teach. And I'm not entirely sure I want individual school districts to decide, be it in Alabama or Texas or Washington State, get to decide what counts as being media literate and what doesn't. Um, it seems like we have some real issues to, to search through here. On that note, you're new to the Loopcast, and we like to give our guests time to maybe elaborate on something that we might not have touched on or have a final say before we end the show. So I'd like to hand the floor over to you. Well, so one thing I think you had asked previously was, uh, is there a failure case for, for, a, for what we're having to deal with Russia? I think the, the biggest failure in this case would be if we simply bury our collective heads in the sand and refuse to measure the adversary's messaging at all. I don't mind if we have debates about what messaging is effective, whether the, whether the Russian messaging in 2016 was effective in, in uh, convincing people to vote one way or the other. Um, I don't mind having that debate, but it seems like we've really put our heads in the sand and we really need to get it out uh, and at least measure the effects of the adversary's messaging. Identify what worked for them, what didn't work for them. Otherwise, we're just going to have this same debate in 2020 and, and for the rest of the elections from for, from here till forever. So regardless of where your audience stands on, on whether the Russian messaging was effective or not, I think we should all be able to reasonably agree that measuring measuring the effect of the messaging is something we very much need to do. And get that in the hands of our decision makers so we can do something about it. I'm not seeing enough of that done out there. And uh, it's really concerning as we go into future election cycles that we are, we're, we're not really even attempting to measure the success or failure of these uh, propaganda campaigns. And I think that's putting us at a significant disadvantage. Well, with those words, I think that's a perfect way to end the show. And I want to thank you again for coming on the Loopcast, Jonathan. And hopefully we can have another conversation along these lines in the future. Thanks for having me. It was fun.